Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science of each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back to Your Case is on Hold, the JBJS podcast covering the best in orthopedic research. I am Andrew Schoenfeld, international man of mystery, but my alter ego is the deputy editor for fashion at JBJS. And my co-host, Antonia Chen, who is the opposite of fashion. My job is to keep it straight, keep it real, and keep it going with black. Right, there you go. Founded by the Germans in 1876, they called it JBJS, which of course in German means the single greatest orthopedic journal in the history of ever. That doesn't, that's not right. It's the, it's an acronym for the, the journal bone and joint surgery. Agree to disagree. Right? <laughs> it's, well, I mean, it's all a matter of perspective, right? If yes. it's the earliest one, it has to be the best one, right? <laughs> do it first or do it best. <laughs> Or so, <laughs> Exactly. This is our uh, second March Madness episode. So we will be discussing all the mascots of our uh, journal articles and then stay tuned to the end for the answers to the March Madness challenge that I issued to listeners in the last episode. I gave you a shot. Uh, it, is, it is hard, but it is good. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, as you know, a reminder, as always, uh, your cases on hold covers the opinions of myself and Antonia and are not indicative of the opinions or any official line or stance of the journal and its editors, as well as the board of directors. In addition, we're coming up on the Academy meeting. Stop by the JBJS booth if you're at Academy to meet and greet with Dr. Chen and also to pick up your free Your Cases on Hold giveaways. So coffee is a must and the giveaways, you can have all sorts of stuff in there. It doesn't have to be coffee, but coffee is a good start. Yep. Drinking it, keeping it warm, keeping it cold, whatever you need. Take it when your case is on hold. Multi-purpose, multi-purpose. Sometimes if your case is on hold too many times, you might have to put a little something extra in there just to keep you chill. But uh, in addition, check out the new JBJS feature, the humanities feature. There is a um, Ortho Joe podcast covering the humanities feature. So it's not just science. It's not just entertainment and pop culture anymore. We're now in the field of humanities too, which is which is wonderful. When shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won? That will be ere the set of sun, where the place upon the heath there to meet with Macbeth. That's Shakespeare. If you didn't pick up on that, you need to get in on the humanities section. It was not a mascot, that is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Miller Review course, so be sure to sign up for that if you are uh, looking for additional education on the science side. And that will bring us at uh, this point to the headlines. So uh, my headline 
is the paper Trends of Obesity Rates Between Patients Undergoing Primary Total Knee Arthroplasty and the General Population from 2013 to 2020. This is by Mutasami and colleagues with the senior author, Dr. Rand Schwarzkopf. This is from New York University, The Violets. And there is an infographic, so don't just take it from me. Be sure to uh, check that out and uh, get a nice summary on this work. This study is involving uh, patients treated at New York University over the last uh, seven years of the previous decade, 2013 to 2020. It's a single academic medical center and it's affiliated tertiary orthopedic specialty hospital, which would be the hospital for joint disease. There's a special place in my heart for NYU. My mom is an NYU alum. I started my research career, not doing science research, but just my research career uh, in the NYU library over there at Washington Square Park. My dad also used to work at Bellevue Hospital, which is one of the constituent teaching hospitals of the New York University. So anything coming out of NYU, it always grabs my attention. Of course, as we mentioned, uh, I'm a native New Yorker and that is my old stomping grounds. So this was an interesting study with uh, over 11,000 patients undergoing primary total knee arthroplasty and over a million patients who underwent annual physical examination through the NYU Medical Center service over the course of, of this time frame. And they're basically looking at the BMI numbers of patients who had total knee replacement and then also comparing it with the BMI numbers of just the general population that's getting, you know, medical checkups. And uh, perhaps not surprisingly, the, the numbers are increasing. And if you look at the numbers uh, at table two, this is where you can kind of get a good sense of it. They also have a nice figure in figure one showing the same kind of idea. There's a, there's a general trend increase. And this is they build their main talking points around this, essentially uh, highlighting that patients who undergo total knee arthroplasty continue to have higher BMI than the general population, but that both are showing, showing a steady increase over time. And then this is where we get into the Dick Vital. It's March Madness. You need a TO, Dr. Schwarzkopf, take a TO, because um, then they just sort of switch lanes and they're like, we need to cut down. We need to cut down on the obesity in the general population because this is driving total knee arthroplasty. Which, whether that is true or not, is not a direct result of their research effort. And if you actually look at Table Two, here's what really stood out to me. If you look at the annual physicals that are being conducted, 2013, 14, 15, they go from 25,000 to 41,000 to 70,000. Then in 2016, there's over 100,000, then it's 167,017, and they're going up into above 250,000 in 2018 or, or close to it in 2018 to 2020. So the way they talk about it, they make it seem to you as if it's the same population of patients that are just gaining in BMI. Actually, the number of patients in their catchment that they're servicing is what they're growing. And they may be reaching into different populations, some of which may be predisposed to having higher amounts of BMI. So this is not like a time trend analysis of the same group of patients. This is, you're just astronomically increasing the number of individuals that you're servicing here. And the numbers are going up for the number of patients with total knee arthroplasty as well, which may, may make some questions regarding, you know, if indications are getting broader, et cetera. It's an interesting study. 
translational capacity, I think, is open to question. As we talked about, you go, you know, 40, 50 blocks up to HSS and you got people in the Gucci slides and Versace robes. I'm not sure this applies to them. I'm not sure this applies to people in Boston. I'm not sure this applies to people in Texas or Michigan or Wisconsin. So that part is getting the TO, baby. But other than that, it's a definitely interesting work and, and a nice look uh, into the uh, population parameters in the NYU system. I agree with you. Yeah, it's it's an interesting system in one network. I think this is one of those studies, though, and I've noted it as well, too. It'd been really nice to do it on a national scale, right? And, and I think it's always a tough part, too, is this is looking at Medicare, like Medicare patients, for example, would be able to kind of constrain with regards to age. So, you know, they, they noted age differences between people who are getting routine physicals. I think me personally is like, when's the last time you got a physical, Dr. Schoenfeld? Have you gotten one recently? Because I haven't, and I'd be really bad at being able to be included in this group, not talking about my weight or obesity or anything like that. So I think it definitely skews patients is one thing. Um, but it's not surprising that older patients are more likely to undergo total knee replacements than the younger patients in this population, right? So the findings there of age differential um, might be what's driving it to some degree as well too, right? If a patient comes in and they have bad arthritis and they're not undergoing the TKA at 40 because they're like, well, you should wait till longer and they're getting it later. So that TKA population, I think is a little bit skewed as well too. And obesity is a known risk factor leading to knee osteoarthritis, which may or may not be treated by total knee arthroplasty. We all know total knee arthroplasty is a surrogate for knee arthritis, but just because you have knee arthritis doesn't mean you're undergoing a total knee replacement. So it may be more interesting to look not just necessarily at patients going, undergoing total knee arthroplasty, but actually their knee arthritis, right? On a, like a X-ray, Kelgen-Lawrence grade scale, things like that. So, but I agree with yeah, that. I mean, I think they did try, they say that they, you know, did in their assessments adjust for the difference uh, in age between the groups. However, you know, pro tip inside from a methods angle, adjustment is not magic. So just because you say you adjusted for it doesn't mean you're able to fully adjust for it. And the computer, the analytics, the program that you're using to perform this adjustment, it can only work with the data that it's given. So if you have a substrate population that's in a separate, completely separate Venn diagram from the other population that you're analyzing, you're still going to get results. It doesn't mean that like, oh, it's don't even worry about it. It's taken care of. Fully adjusted, fully taken right, yeah. care of. And all, all the time. <laughs> exactly. So, so the one thing I would love to add into, especially single institution studies is radiographs. Now with the number of patients they have, that's a lot of radiographs to evaluate, yeah. but that would be really cool to add to that. So there's it. There it is. So we'll go with total knees to total knees. How's that? Yeah, all right. This is uh, total knee heavy. <laughs> Which in my joint world, of course, is a wonderful thing, but that's obviously personally biased. So the article I'm talking about now is total knee arthroplasty function at 25 years following proximal tibial osteotomy paired outcomes of bilateral total knee arthroplasties following unilateral osteotomy from um, Hevesi et al. and another big institution out of Mayo that looks at it. And, you know, these big institutions are great because they're able to look at this data and able to tease data out of it. So the patient population is ideal. And the authors did point out the fact that they're basically taking the same patient who underwent bilateral knee replacement, either simultaneous or at the same time, or staged when they're done at different times. And one side had a proximal tibial osteotomy and the other side did not. So the patient serves as an internal control. And that's great. That's really nice when it comes to controls. As Andrew just said, you can't control for everything. So when you have an internal person control, that's really good. Now, the hard part about that is when you have the same person, is when you're filling out the surveys, 
you do have to differentiate between the laterality of the sides. And sometimes it can be confusing for patients. You know, they can be like, well, my right knee hurts on this day, but on, the, on, on other days it doesn't hurt as much. And my left knee, patients say that all the time. You're like, well, today my right knee is yelling at me, but you know, yesterday it was my left knee. So being able to separate what they looked at in terms of outcomes with regards to the knee society score, forgotten joint score, you know, and the Tagner activity score, you look at that when you separate by knee, it becomes a little bit harder, but they do differentiate that they actually look at each one individually. So what I would love to do is, in this case, they obviously included simultaneous and staged patients, and the simultaneous total neoarthroplasty were only 16 cases. So it was a small percentage of people. That said, if it was just simultaneous, then I think you get a better marker of how patients are doing, right? Because their follow-up, and they have nice long follow-up, which is great. The hard part is, you know, at one year, one's feeling better. At two years, it feels better. So the longer you've had one side, that might actually feel better just based on duration of time as to the actual procedure that was done itself. So for if you had a PTO first, which is the case here, then they've had longer follow-up. They've done, you know, that earlier rather than the contralateral TKA. That could potentially confound results to some degree. But in general, the follow-up was very long. It was a mean of 25 plus or minus seven years with the range of six to 40 years, which you can really do um, in their database, which is really nice to see. There's also a huge variety of implants, so it's not implant-specific, which is nice. But their key factor is they're really saying, all right, we're looking at patient outcome, and they do pretty well in both groups, both knee society score as well as a forgotten joint score. But they don't address things like the difficulty with surgery, right? The idea of a PTO leading to total knee replacement, there's different things you have to take under consideration, things like angular deformity, patella baja. They show similar reoperation, um, and only one of them was directly associated with the PTO, which is hardware removal afterwards. So they show that at the end of the day, if you had a PTO um, and you underwent a total knee replacement, you are likely probably to do as well as if you had just a native total knee replacement. So it's okay to get a PTO, but I'd love to see a little more information in this patient population than just outcomes, but patient reported outcomes is what we really have um, with regards to how we're doing. This is the second uh, PTO or high tibial osteotomy article that we've had uh, in, in, in the last couple of uh your cases on hold uh, episodes here. So, so you're uh, all in on this, uh, on the private plane, feet up, sipping Tecate, about to land for Akis. <laughs> so first of all, it's called commercial. <laughs> two, it's, uh, it's one of those things where the upside of a PTO in theory is longer duration of having to undergo a total knee replacement. That's the thought process, right? Whether or not it makes it, and there's two aspects I'd say to look at this article. One, if you're a patient, you know, if I get this first, will that ruin my chances of total knee down the line? And it seems to show that your patient outcomes are similar if you do or don't do a PTO. So do you need to do that PTO where you undergo a surgical procedure where you're not weight bearing for a long period of time and you get your bone to heal? Potentially on the flip side, just wait for a total knee and you'll do well too. You know, the type of work that can only come out of a place that's been at the leading edge of collecting outcomes and all of those important research parameters, you know, only places like Mayo Clinic in Iowa, where they've got these populations that they've been following and serving for so many decades, can you do this kind of stuff? So really, really special that way. Nice to have those databases that keep on collecting. So keep it up if you have them or, or start making yeah, them now. That keeps on giving. Just like the Jelly of the Month Club. <laughs> I'm talking about Clark. The month, there's so many options. <laughs> Why not right. talking about this? <laughs> it is now time to Drax them sclounced. 
in the your case is on hold featurette this week we are talking about the impact of femoral component cementation on fracture and mortality risk in elective total hip arthroplasty analysis from a national medicare sample this is a uh, edelstein and colleagues from the medical college of wisconsin used to be marquette university medical school fun fact so we'll call them the golden eagles this is free for 30 days, so no excuses. Everybody get in on this so you can make your own impressions and don't just take it from us. Antonia, what are you thinking? So it's one of those areas where um, Medicare is the right database to do this in. I would say we just talked about databases. It's an elderly patient population. It always kills me a little bit when I see elderly is 65 and above because I feel like 65 is the new 45, so I don't want to call them elderly, but that's how this population is defined as. And, you know, it might actually be useful if they had put that in the title, right? They said, you know, this is an elderly patient. It did indicate that it's uh, Medicare, so that's helpful, and people do know what that is, but it'd be nice to know that. The key factor, though, so as a caveat, elderly patients aren't the only ones with bad bone, right? So this is looking at a specific cohort of patients over that age, and it may be beneficial to come up with parameters when to use cement in patients, but that's not the context of the study here. So this is a study that's looking at a large database of patients, as you can imagine, because you have the Medicare sample and seeing ephemeral component cementation in fracture and the fracture risk and mortality risk. They looked at 90 days for fracture risk, but only 30 days for mortality. And a lot of studies actually look up to one year for mortality rates after a hip fracture. So I love to see a little bit more duration of time, either 90 days or a year, in all honesty, when it comes to this. So it'd be nice to be able to at least increase to 90 days for both of them. One caveat I would say, and I commend the authors that they're really good at this, but we actually tried to look at ICD-10 codes for cementing, and it's not very reliable. So that's the only thing I'm concerned about is how do they identify those who were cemented? And they say ICD-10 codes and they use DRGs, which is good for Medicare when it comes to undergoing total hips, but the actual cementation process is difficult because it's not well recorded. So it's the only thing that I worry about a little bit. But it does affirm a lot of the data that is coming out. If a patient is over 70, especially a female, cementing them decreases the risk of fracture, which makes sense because you're giving some structural integrity to the bone. They showed that males had increased risk of mortality, though, if they were cemented within 30 days. And they did say that there was a trend towards increasing risk of mortality in females. Now, the only caveat I would say here is the confidence interval did cross over one. So I don't know if then, and we, I think we rely a lot or too much on p-values. So a p-value of 0.06 doesn't necessarily mean trending towards it. The confidence interval did cross over one. So I don't think it makes it that significant. Um, it's a little bit helpful because then there's conflicting messages with this uh, paper because it's saying if I cement a total hip in an elderly female, then I could increase her risk of mortality, but I decrease her risk of breaking and um, getting a periprosthetic fracture. So I think the take-home message is here from a methodology standpoint, and the methodology editor can tell me or not, <laughs> is that that trend towards, quote, significance is not as significant. And I would say that the take-home message is cement in women who are over 70 when it comes to total hypothyroplasty with bone quality. So that the cause of mortality is probably not the cementation alone, though, right? There's many other factors that contribute to mortality when it comes to undergoing these uh, surgeries. So, you know, it's not cementing alone as the only uh, confounder, but that is what they looked at specifically in the study. Yeah, I, I think that now that we've got a couple of these episodes under the belt here and people are starting to get familiar with the format, authors, you know, may be listening in and it's kind of like that 80s game show, Press Your Luck, where they're like, oh, what are they going to say? No whammy, no whammy, no whammy. And then it's like, oh, no, 
know, they had those little cartoon guys that would come out and they were like all red and they could be dressed up as like a doctor or have a computer and they'd be like, your case is on hold. <laughs> this is totally like, you know, anesthesia is calling. There's a hole in the implant set. The tech dropped the stuff all over the floor. Case, hold, holding, going to be held. It's going to be a while. Everything that you pointed out are cause for pause in this context. And we're just going to be getting the TO here, get the bus started, get the case on the bus. Because, um, yeah, I think there are a couple of different parameters here that really bring to mind from a methods angle what I think is, is you know, kind of questionable. The first is just 30-day mortality, like 90-day global period. And certainly one year, as you mentioned, if you, I mean, it doesn't mean you can't look at 30 days, but you should be looking at these other ones as well. Sometimes, you know, there's lots of different flavors of Medicare data. Now the purest is to actually have the Medicare claims, the full on data and do the linkages pro tip linkages yourself, cleanse the data yourself. So you have like actionable control over patient number one, patient number two, and you can see everything that happened to them. But that's not, and I don't know if that's the case here. I'm not saying that it is, but I know I do see with several submissions to JBJS where we're seeing that it's it's data that comes from a third party carrier or it's Medicare data that comes from like Market Scan or Pearl Diver or something like that. Where the data, you know, the, the the analysts don't have actual hands-on with the the real data. The real data is where you can get into the weeds, and it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time and a lot of experience to be able to do this right. Check rechecking the analyzing the ICD ten codes and everything that you just mentioned, and it takes a lot of uh, a lot of person hours just to get to the point where you're ready to do the analysis. And you know, it's kind of like if it doesn't have a comma on the number of hours in your price tag for the work that was done. I mean, do you even want it, right? But but then who is even counting hours and doing research? Because there's nothing better that you can be doing than orthopedic research, right? But a lot of people are trying to cheat code, walk into the greatness and just sort of, you know, circumvent those things for a variety of reasons. And sometimes it's like, if you don't have the hands-on granularity of the data, that limits what you can do analytically. And I'm not sure if that was the case here, but there are some things that stand out to me that that raise some concerns that way, Um, including if we're talking about the decision to cement, that's a decision point. And let's just think about it again, going back to the Plato's cave analogy, where we're going to run an experiment. And the ideal experiment is a randomized trial. We'll randomize some people to cement and we'll randomize people to, to not having cement. And obviously, there are a variety of reasons you can't do that. This is pre-existing data. And so what we want to do is have kind of the analysis built around the decision point for the cement. What they did was they took 90-day periprosthetic fracture patients, and then they matched them one to two to controls on the basis of sex, age, race, number of comorbidities, the payment model, which means according to them, whether the facility was subject to mandatory bundling payments uh, or not, and then the census division of facility and time to fracture for cases, time observed uh, without fracture for controls. None of those things are, are factors that I think play into making a decision for cement or not. If you're concerned about cardiopulmonary issues, for example, maybe some of the comorbidities might factor into that, but 
this has not fundamentally answered the question of what you're adjusting for here is really getting to the root. And then that's a cause for concern for me when you get into the, this is okay in these patients, but not okay in those patients. It kind of starts becoming, is that an artifact of the analytics and the number of comparisons that you're making? And some of this is popping out due to chance. Is this just the shadow on the wall from the Plato's cave analogy, or is this a, a real finding? Is this the epistemological truth? And, you know, this stuff about like, well, it almost reached significance. So we're going to talk about it. You should not be using p-value thresholds to define what, you know, what is meaningful and what is it. You should be looking at the point estimate, the 95% confidence interval, how precise that is. Here, the point estimate for the effect size is 74% increase. So, you know, what this speaks to is that they were underpowered to actually detect this. And that's, that's a cause for pause. That's cause for a timeout when you take it in the context of everything else that we've already identified. So case on hold. Does this apply to the next one as well? I'm very curious. Oh, so now we're in the toss up. (laughs) Well, the question for us is, does this study feasibility of machine learning and logistic regression algorithms to predict outcomes in orthopedic trauma surgery put the nail in the coffin for machine learning? This is Oosterhof and colleagues, group out of the Netherlands, but we have Dr. Ring and Dr. Schwab on board in this author list. So that's University of Texas, Longhorns, and uh, Dr. Schwab, of course, is local in the Harvard Crimson team. Once again, we come back to machine learning. For those who have been listening, and if you haven't, get the old episodes too, you know, check in on our old uh YCOH episodes, but this is like uh, it, machine learning is like our Annabelle, you know, the little the little haunted doll. My daughter's really into uh, into that that series, and the doll just keeps you know popping up with like her little board that she writes like "miss me" on it. So machine learning is taunting us here and saying, "Did you miss me? Because I'm back." Oh, it's back. And if I dare say, I would like to quote a very intelligent individual I once heard say on a podcast somewhere that a well-done logistic regression can beat up machine learning all day long. Is that correct? So I think you're referring to what we're now going to call Schoenfeld's rule. Uh, and the rule is, is that if you're getting to the absolute truth, no matter what kind of analysis you're doing, they should all come to the same point. And I think this is an exemplification of that to some degree. It seems like you're you're agreeing that way. I think that's where I actually have in my mind, you've been saying this all along, Andrew, this is what you've been pointing at. You know, they use multiple different models, multiple, they did logistic regression, did it well, and found that it was actually better to do logistic regression. Not to say machine learning is bad, but they compared multiple different areas. And I think this was really nice about this paper is that it's not just one machine learning algorithm, right? Understanding that one algorithm is not necessarily the right one. That's why there are multiple different algorithms. So they ran them all and they were honest with their results. They're like, look, we wanted to see if there was a difference. And we found logistic regression did great. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, some things to point out about their logistic regression is that they're using logistic regression in the same way they're using the machine learning, which is sort of like this agnostic, we'll throw everything in and see what it kind of puts out for us. We're letting the machine do the work. And, you know, they they do engage in some practices that, uh, again, pro tip behind the scenes, we promised that from day one. So now you're getting it. You know, they they used for, for every 10 outcomes, they, they allowed inclusion of a variable in the logistic model. 
And uh, those of us who handle the methodology side at the journal, I mean, that that is an acceptable parameter. That's kind of like the most permissive. We'd like to be a little bit more conservative and look at 20 for well-fit models. So you want about 20 outcomes for every variable that you're going to put in. That just makes the model more conservative, less prone to errors. And then they say they developed a parsimonious logistic regression model, which means that they just sort of kept throwing stuff these bivariate comparisons looking for factors that would either meet their threshold or show some significance. And then they're going to put that in, in the, in the regression model. I think that, you know, thoughtful regression models should really be specified using a conceptual model. If you're doing exploratory work, it can be done this way, but that does increase the risk for spurious findings and conclusions that again, may not be especially well-founded. Touching back on the last one, you get kind of these like, oh, this is sort of weird, but it's in this person, it's okay. And in this person, it isn't. Well, that's because you have like limited numbers to compare across these various parameters. Secondary effects and what we call interactions could be limited. And they used a lot of different data sets here. So they should have fairly broad clinical variation. But again, this kind of exploratory approach doesn't always culminate in incredibly meaningful and informative outcome measures. That being said, my other point here is that they go through all of this and they, they say they recognize like, you know, really not seeing an advantage here for machine learning. But in their conclusion, it still seems to me that they're trying to sell the machine learning. And they say, in our opinion, their results support a pragmatic approach favoring pre-selection of clinically relevant variables in the development of clinical prediction models. Well, that goes without saying that should always be that way. That's just what I was talking about. And then they say probability estimates also need validation in different time periods and validated outcomes for probability estimation could be a software add-on to an electronic health record with automatic calculation and recording for decision support. I don't even know what that means. Nobody knows what that means, but it's provocative. It gets your research published. It's like the hitchhiker from something about Mary where, where he's like, you know, seven minute abs. And he's like, well, that's all great until they come out with six minute abs. And then he's like, six minute abs. No, you can't get a workout in six minutes. Seven, that's the number. Machine learning, that's the ticket. It's all about machine learning. They you were know, like, too. Machine learning gets your ass yeah. too. <laughs> Seven chipmunks twirling on a branch, doing machine learning on my uncle's ranch. You know that old children's tale from the sea? Yeah. If you're not into machine learning, you're dreaming about Gorgonzola when it's clearly breed time, baby. Come on now. And some people are like, how can he bring something about Mary into this? Mary was an orthopedic surgeon. Mary was an orthopedic surgeon. Her and Brett Favre, they were reading... 1998, 1999, JBJS, Landis and colleagues, distal interphalangeal tissue engineering on her table in the episode. That's pretty cool. On her desk. No wonder she has such perfect hair. That's right. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On to the big finish. A little less exciting, I guess, in this case. (laughs) Uh, Tell me about the next generation DNA sequencing. This is from O2 and colleagues, Maryland Terrapins, and there's a commentary. 
is a commentary. So the real question is, what's the best way to diagnose infection? And in the trauma world, it's really hard. In the hip and knee world, there's criteria, there's different guidelines with regards to blood tests, with regards to synovial fluid tests. But in trauma, normally it's if it smells bad and looks bad, or if you have a positive culture. So cultures are everything in trauma. If you don't have a culture, then you're not likely going to be treating it like an infection. And then of course, there's non-unions that can be septic or aseptic. And there can be fractures that come in that are considered to be aseptic, even though there's hematoma, but it's a closed fracture. So these authors basically said, hey, here's a bunch of fractures. Let's test them for cultures. And let's also send for next generation sequencing and see how much times the cultures grew or something, how many times NGS came up with something and how much time, how many times were they in concordance with one another? And they found that understandably culture is less sensitive. And we've seen this too, is that culture negative infections are pretty real. Either, you know, you, you take a culture and it sits on a swab or you take a culture and it sits in the, the lab for a long period of time or in the clinic or something like that, where you don't actually run it. So culture negative rate on average, about 15 to 20%, which is pretty high. Next generation sequencing works on the molecular level, right? They do PCR, they look at 16S, they look at ITS genes, they go really in depth and they basically break it all down and they say, okay, we're going to take whatever fragments of bacteria are present and actually amplify them and then give you a list. Now, if anyone's ever done next generation sequencing before, sometimes you'll get a list of four or five organisms. And that's a pretty scary list because that's a lot of them. So the study basically supported what has already been shown in literature. That's cultures will be a little bit lower. So there's lower sensitivity in cultures. NGS will have higher sensitivity because there's more positive cultures seen on it, sometimes too positive, right? So some false positives as well too. And they said, you know, the rate of concordance is not high enough, right? 50% is chance. They got 70, some 73%. They said, you know, that's not a huge, huge difference. So their main conclusion was basically saying, you know what, we shouldn't substitute uh, NGS for our current cultures or complement it. And I might put it on hold just a bit because it did show that next generation sequencing was slightly more, was more sensitive, right? It detected more organisms. So what I hold on their conclusion potentially is to say it's actually useful if you don't have an organism. Now, do you need to act on everything that NGS comes back positive for? No. But is it potentially helpful to have that information and uh, potentially act on it if you suspect infection? Then you at least have an organism to target your antibiotics or your treatments too. So I wouldn't necessarily put in the category of don't use it at all, especially in the trauma setting, but use it prudent, prudently. Like don't use it for every single patient. Yeah. Next up is a tibial tuberosity, trochlear groove distance, and it's components in patients with and without episodic patellar dislocation. This is from Dr. Chen uh, and colleagues in Shanghai. <laughs> in Shanghai. Yeah. Uh, they studied uh, 521 uh patients or 541 knees with episodic patellar dislocation and 240 knees without patellar dislocation. The tibial tuberosity trochlear groove distance demonstrated the best diagnostic performance. Uh, some of this is based on rotation and trochlear groove medialization, a lot of the anatomic consideration in the area of the knee. They have some important pointers, uh, particularly when it comes to femoral trochlear dysplasia. The Clinical application or where it kind of goes from, from here is not well specified. And that's probably the, the only part of it that for me is like um, holding. We're holding for the clinical guidance. But uh, for those you know who work in this area, definitely an interesting piece. There is a visual summary. It's also free for 30 days. So uh, get in and check that out. Tell me about intimate partner violence during recovery from an orthopedic injury. So this is a tough one. We talked about yeah. gunshot injuries when COVID. Right. You know, now we're talking right. about 
intimate partner violence. So this is a study that covered six sites over multiple different countries, which is great. You had Canada and Netherlands, Spain, and Finland, which is great. It only had 250 patients, though, which I was kind of surprised with. So I don't mm-hmm. know if the number of patients were not willing to fill out the survey or they just didn't get it across a lot of different people. So I wish I had more patients. That'd be really useful. But it did show that patients with intimate partner violence had worse outcomes. And I think this is something that's key to note because this was just done in trauma. Why don't we do this other places as well, too? You know, anytime you're recovering from any sort of orthopedic procedure, you're normally harder or held back from a mobility standpoint, you know, doing activities. And there's a lot of opportunities for intimate partner violence. So, you know, right now for like hips fractures, we screen patients for a bone density test because it's a medical problem that we can take into effect and treat. Well, what if we do this for intimate partner violence as well, too? And again, not just in the trauma setting, although the trauma setting is a great place to do it because those injuries could have been brought on by that. And then as a result of it, actually still perpetuate a year later, um, because we do this in all different other areas, you know, do you have someone to support you at home? You know, when we're doing outpatient joints, we ask patients if they have someone to help them at home, but we don't ask them if they're, you know, worried about violence, things like that. And I think it's something that we could definitely use as a better screening tool. And, and we have, we're doing surgery, elective and non-elective. We can actually do this and jump in and uh, make patients' lives hopefully better. Yeah. It's a, a serious topic and uh, very important to bring this to light and, um, Kudos to Dr. Madden and their team. There's also a commentary for this and definitely take a look and um, very appropriate that uh, JBGS has published uh, this work because it's it's important for us and uh, important for patients, families, and, and providers. The next one is from Dr. Furdock and colleagues at Case Western Reserve University, the Spartans. Uh, there's also a commentary for this. This is systematic isolation of key parameters for estimating skeletal maturity on anterior-posterior wrist radiographs. I have a uh, 15-year-old and a 14-year-old and an eight-year-old, all of whom are definitely wanting to grow some more. So I was very interested in uh, reading about this. Um, The goal here is to be able to make a skeletal maturity estimate from wrist radiographs, which uh, clinical application they recommend would be useful to not only treat patients with uh, adolescent forearm fractures, but also scoliosis and other conditions that require these estimates in the growing patient. So they compared what they're calling the modified FELS wrist skeletal maturity system to two other legacy systems, the Grulich and Pyle skeletal age and the Sanders hand systems uh, stage. Uh, That one is the one that I was previously most familiar with. So they had 372 radiographs among 42 girls and 38 boys with the age range across both cohorts summating here, 7 to 16. They found that the modified scales risk skeletal maturity system was more uh, accurate than the two legacy systems, uh, also more reliable, and that it could rapidly make skeletal maturity estimation. So definitely a value, definitely something to check out if you're working in the pediatric space or like me are hoping that uh, the kids are growing some more. That's what we've got for this week, this issue. Uh, Remember everyone to subscribe so you get the notifications for the next one before it comes out. If you're new to the podcast, check out the back issues. We've got some exciting tips, tricks, insights, education, entertainment, pop culture, fashion, all the above. And now for the final piece de resistance, I know everyone has been waiting. Were you able to do it? Were you able to get the challenge? We wanted seven Division I college basketball teams for the March Madness, most of them not participating in this March Madness, but 
still seven that play division one basketball and also have a medical school. You ready um, for it? I'm gonna, I'm waiting for it. All right. Here are the answers. There are only 11. You only have to get seven, but there are only 11 in total. So we've got the Stanford Cardinal, not Cardinals. They're not a bird. It's a tree. The Howard Bison, the Illinois Fighting Illini, the Tulane Green Wave, us at Harvard, the Crimson, UMass Minutemen, Nevada Wolfpack, Dartmouth, the Big Green, Cornell, the Big Red, Hofstra, used to be the Flying Dutchman, interesting fact, now they're called the Pride, both ones would count though, and the last number 11, Marshall Thundering Herd, out of Conference USA. You win. (laughs) Well done. Hopefully, listeners, you got some or all or many of those. Um, But uh, that is the answer to the Martin Madness Challenge. I love it. I hope you guys did great with that. If not, we're all going to go back and look at our brackets. (laughs) Not you get on hold. You get a whammy. You get a T.O. And uh, we look forward to seeing you guys again in April and after AOS. Come out to the booth. Come up to the booth. Like to see you there. Come stop by. Have a drink with me. We'll have coffee at the booth and take a sip in our wonderful cups. Everyone who ever meets me is really excited to hear that uh, I'm your colleague and partner. So I'm sure that there will be a long line to get in on getting an autograph. They want to know Dr. Andrew Schoenfeld. <laughs>